Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Before we begin our study this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Give us the opportunity to make sure we're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, that we may look at this uh, masterpiece of a book in the New Testament, the Epistle to the Hebrews, that we may be challenged by its message and gain an understanding of it as an entire work and not just in terms of the uh, parts and the pieces. We pray that we would be responsive to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, that we might be able to concentrate and focus on this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. also want to thank you for your prayers this last week as I was in Los Angeles. I didn't get washed away. No mudslides caught me. Just spent all the time in the hotel. We had our, our board meeting for the conference that comes in October. And usually at the board meetings what happens is we'll have a start off with a devotional And then I will teach for about an hour on Greek grammar and syntax and Bible study methods. So that went very well, and I was still struggling with getting over the flu, so I had some battles there, but I seem to be gradually recovering. So I appreciate your prayers. Open your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. And in the next uh, 55 minutes, we are going to work our way through the 13 chapters of Hebrews, get that bird's-eye view, the, the uh, overview of the book of Hebrews. What is the plan and approach? In the early church, they would have rec- whoever this group was that the writer to the Hebrews addressed, they would have received this as an epistle, and the pastor of the church would have stood up and read it as one, in its entirety, as one piece on a Sunday morning. And that is how they would have initially heard that. Now, I'm not going to read it. If I did, that would take, I don't know, maybe an hour, hour and a half to read through the whole thing orally so you can see the kind of concentration they had in the early church. What I want to do is give you the structure and overview and work our way through and just talk about what is being said in Hebrews to give you that that frame of reference so that when we start to look at the parts of the whole, the bits and pieces, they have some sort of significance for the whole. Most of the time when we start off looking at a book in the Bible, we start off and we look at a verse or a half a verse or maybe a clause, and we spend a whole Bible class picking it apart, relating it to other 
uh, scriptures, and then we come back, but we somehow lose sight of how that clause, that one little piece, fits in the whole picture. It would be like picking up a piece in a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle and just trying to uh, spend all of your time studying that one little piece without ever fitting it into the whole uh, picture and understanding its relationship to everything else. Now, as we go through Hebrews, I'm going to put this outline up on the board. Hebrews was, as I stated in the introductory classes, written as a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation is a challenge where a certain amount of information is given in the message and then there is a challenge to the volition to apply the information. The Bible never just teaches raw information. It is always information toward a purpose of changing your thinking and an embedded challenge to respond to God's teaching so that we can think biblically and interact with the world around us biblically. The first section, in fact, just by way of overview, Hebrews will have five sections to it. There's a lot of different outlines that I've worked with over the years. And a few years ago, as I was working through Hebrews, it became more and more clear to me that Hebrews is structured around five warning passages. And these warning passages are something that we will get into tonight, but they're they're what cause great consternation to many people, and they're called problem passages because they seem to suggest to some folks that you can lose your salvation. To other folks, it seems to suggest that, that if I don't stick with it, then maybe I really wasn't saved. And actually, the truth is, these are warning passages to warn believers that if you don't stick with it in the, in the Christian life, you don't stay in fellowship, then there may be serious consequences at the judgment seat of Christ and in the millennial kingdom. So this... The, the whole structure of this sermon is built around five points. He didn't have three points in a poem. He had five points. And each point, each section, contains a doctrinal exposition followed by a challenge that is either a warning or it contains a serious and sober warning to the believers. The first section goes from chapter 1, verse 1, down through chapter 2, verse 4. This is the opening section. And actually, the first four verses could be separated out as the prelude. The writer has an opening salvo in the first four verses that is a tour de force, introducing the central themes of his message. Like any good writer... He has a thesis statement, and that thesis statement is embedded in these first four verses. He talks about God who had, actually, it should be, the first verse should be translated, after God spoke at various times and in various ways in times past by means, uh, to the fathers by means of the prophets, he, God, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. This is the beginning of this epistle. The first four verses are one complete sentence in the original Greek. Don't chop them up or you'll lose the thrust. In this opening prelude, 
he introduces us to the central themes of the God who speaks. This is very important to trace this idea through Hebrews, that God has spoken. And because God has spoken, there is a, an implied response necessary from the creature. He introduces the superiority of Jesus Christ the Son, and that the Son is the future heir of all things. He then goes on in verses 3 and 4 to expound on the qualifications of the Son, that He is the one by whom all things were created, that it is the Son who by Himself cleansed us from our sins and subsequently ascended to heaven where He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father above the angels and with a name higher than theirs. The implications of Christ's ascension over the angels and his present session will be developed throughout the entire epistle to challenge church-age believers to press on with their spiritual growth in preparation for the future. In fact, if I were to summarize the theme, I would say that the theme of this whole epistle are the implications of the Savior's session on the current sanctification of the saints and their future service in the kingdom. You can tell I've been with preachers the last two days. The implications of the Savior's session on the current sanctification of the saints and their future service in the kingdom. To summarize it even more, it's living today in light of eternity. That's what this writer's talking about. It is a serious and sober warning to believers not to give up, not to fall by the wayside, not to treat their whole salvation lightly or their future destiny lightly, but to hang in there. The opening sentence presents these uh, presents the main idea of the, the epistle, that Christ, by virtue of his victory in his humanity, is qualified to be elevated above all creatures. That as a man, he is to rule over all creation, and that church-age believers are united with him, and with, his, with this relationship with Christ, we have the promise of future, vict- future and final victory over sin, evil, and the enemies of God. The idea presented in verse Four, that having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This idea of inheritance points us to a future realization of that inheritance, which takes place when he assumes his position as king. He hasn't inherited the kingdom yet. That's yet future. Though the second person of the Trinity in his deity is eternally the Son, in his humanity he had to have victory over sin, suffering, and temptation as he grew in his humanity. And then he defeated sin and death at the cross so that in his humanity he also earned the title of Son, which is declared at his ascension. So this tells us we're going to have to spend some time understanding the sonships of Christ. What does it mean that he's the Son of God? And more importantly for this epistle, that he is the Son of David. This immediately relates it to his messianic and millennial rule, which is what's highlighted in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that is understood to be a uh, related to his... Uh, Davidic sonship 
And again, there's a quote from Psalm 89, which is an exposition of the Davidic covenant. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So it takes his, his sonship... In Psalm 2-7, his victorious sonship, and connects it to the Davidic covenant, which is a profound theological concept. So there's so much in this first chapter. What we see here is introduced in the first four verses is that the major thrust of Hebrews is to challenge believers to press on to spiritual maturity because present decisions and growth will determine future position and responsibility in the kingdom. The continued walk by the Holy Spirit, applying doctrine consistently, will eventually result in rewards, responsibilities, and privileges in the coming kingdom. So he then develops these themes through these five points, these five sections, as we go through the book of Hebrews. The first section really covers verses 5 through 14. The doctrinal exposition is from 1, 5 down through 14. And in these verses, there's a development of the idea that the Son is eternally, though he is eternally begotten and superior to the angels in his deity, in his humanity he is elevated above the angels. In these verses, in this short section from verse 5 down through 14, the writer quotes seven psalms and one verse from Isaiah in order to substantiate his argument. The emphasis is on Jesus Christ as the Davidic son, that at the ascension he's declared begotten, a position that he held eternally in his deity, but that he qualifies for as in his humanity. This qualification prepares him to take the throne for a righteous rule in the kingdom. That's the significance of the quote from Psalm 45, 6 to 7, which is found in verse 8. This reflection upon his sonship and his future reign and these in verses 5 through 9 leads to a praise related to God's character. The praise of God is the eternal, immutable creator in verses 10 through 12, which is a quote from Psalm 102, 25 to 28. Now one other thing I want you to note is a, is a word you ought to circle. As we go through this, I'll have you circle various words. One key word you ought to circle throughout the first chapter is the word son. Son is found in verse 2. Son is found in verse Five, son is found in ver- the second half of verse 5. It's found again in verse 8. Another word you ought to notice is the word companions at the end of verse 9. It's found in the quote from Isaiah uh, 61.1. The last phrase with the oil of gladness, more than your companions. This is the word metakoi. Now, there are going to be two concepts that we run across in Hebrews and in Revelation 2 and 3 that we're going to tie together. Revelation uses the word overcomers. Hebrews uses the word metakoites, the plural for metakos, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-I. And metakoi are the companions 
are the participants, the partakers with Jesus Christ, his friends, as it were. And they're roughly analogous to David's band of mighty men in the Old Testament. These are the ones who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. This is the, the, the word metakoi here, and overcomers in, uh, based on Nikkei, the word for conqueror, vic- victorious one, in uh, Revelation 2 and 3, are the New Testament words for the, new, for the church age believer who is victorious in the Christian life to rule and reign with our Lord in the kingdom. So we're going to get those words down. You'll hear them a lot. The one other notion that I want you to, or the one other idea I want you to pay attention to in the first chapter, which is above all the most important, is the word speaking, this idea of communication. We're going to see this throughout Hebrews. God, literally the first verse should begin, as we'll see in our exegesis next time, begins with a temporal participle after God spoke in time past. What did he do? He spoke. And then we're told he has in these last days spoken to us by means of his Son. What did God do? He spoke. He spoke his word. And this is a key concept throughout uh, this epistle is that God has spoken and God speaking demands a response from us. And as you go through the first uh, doctrinal exposition, you see this development of this idea of his speaking And his speaking is through his son, and we see the qualification of his son, who is elevated above the angels. And that's the theme of this first chapter. And it comes to a close, talking about the angels, that they aren't like the son, because they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall inherit salvation. Now, there's another important word for you to circle. What does it mean, salvation? This is a tremendous debate here. Is this talking about being saved from your eternal penalty in the lake of fire, what we would call justification, salvation, phase one? Or is this phase three, glorification, salvation, with a view to the future or eschatological realization of everything that that Christ has secured for us and we will realize only when he comes in his kingdom. Now, if you take it as phase one, you run into problems because then you have to interpret these warning passages in relationship to phase one justification. You end up thinking that these verses cause you to lose your salvation. So you have to take it in terms of the future realization of rewards when we fully realize our salvation in the eternal kingdom. Well, as I pointed out, key word here that I've noticed throughout Revelation is this concept of God speaking. So words such as hearing God, God speaking, the word from God, the message from God, all of those words imply this communication from God which demands a response on our part. And that's where the writer focuses in the first warning. After the doctrinal exposition, there is a practical exhortation and warning in verses uh, 1 through 4, chapter 2. Notice in verse 1 he says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we what? We heard. What did we hear? We heard that which was spoken by the Son back in verse 
2. God has in these last days spoken by the Son. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 2, we must give the more earnest heed to the things that we heard. See, they, they connect. For if the word spoken, what word spoken? That word spoken by the Son. For if the word spoken through the angels, and this, of course, in verse 2 is talking about the word from the Old Testament prophets, if the word spoken through the angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. In other words, if the Mosaic law came and disobedience brought retribution or punishment and obedience brought rewards, how then shall we escape such a great salvation, future tense, See, if you take this as phase one, you got problems. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which, what, at first began to be spoken by the Lord? You see how the warning flows out of the prelude. It's connected. It was spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also bearing witness with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. In other words, if there was retribution and reward for disobeying that which was spoken by the prophets, what kind of retribution and reward can you expect if you don't pay attention to the words spoken by the Son? Because remember, the Son is the heir of all things and elevated above the angels. That's the message of the first part. Then we come to the second section, from 2.5 down through 4.13. From 2.5 down through 4.13. And in this section we learn that God did uh, so much as to send his eternally begotten Son to qualify for the Davidic Sonship in the incarnation to the end that he would establish his kingdom on the earth and so he makes the son lower than the angels Christ the eternal son of God eternal in his deity is made lower than the angels as a human in order that he can fulfill man's original purpose man's original destiny was given in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. God said, let him rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. Yet Adam failed. So what is happening in the incarnation is that God himself becomes a man, takes on humanity, enters into human history lower than the angels, so that he can fulfill that which Adam failed to fulfill so that he can then be crowned with glory and honor and elevated above the angels to rule all creation as a man. See, that's the important thing to realize. We come right back to what what was emphasized in that prelude, and that is the ascension and session of Christ. That in the ascension you have a man ascending to heaven and a man, Jesus in his humanity, he's still the God-man, I'm not denying that, but in his humanity he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So that in his humanity he is over the angels and at the helm of the universe. This is the emphasis in this next section, and this is all for the purpose of bringing many sons to glory. So we move from Jesus being higher than the angels in the first chapter to the second chapter, 
how the process took place, and the process is sanctification. This is introduced in verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, that emphasizes his deity, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the metakoi, the companions, to make the captain of their salvation mature through the things, through, through sufferings. See, Jesus Christ had to go through the process of sanctification just like we do. When we think of sanctification, we normally think of it as, as somehow being um, uh, divested of sin. We think of sanctification in terms of, of sin. But Adam had to learn obedience. doesn't mean you're disobedient to learn obedience. You don't have to commit murder to learn murder's wrong. You don't have to do certain wrong acts to learn that they're wrong. You learn obedience. Jesus had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. That did not mean he's disobedient. He was disobedient. Adam had to go through the same process. So sanctification had to take place. And as Jesus Christ is sanctified, that is the idea of being made mature through suffering, we go on to read, for both he who sanctifies, it's God the Father, and those who are being sanctified are all of one. That means we are one with Christ in the process of sanctification. This has tremendous implications for the Christian life. He's gone through the same thing we've gone through. And because of that, for this which reason, at the end of verse 11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's that metacoy concept again. It's a special class of believers who have consistently obeyed and moved forward in the Christian life. God then declares... Christ's name to my brethren. And the interesting thing is you see the same declaration in Revelation chapter 2. I think it's the fourth letter to uh, Thyatira, or maybe, no, it's to Sardis, that those who wash their robes and their cleanse, that Jesus Christ will confess their name before God, before, before God and before the angels. This is that declaration that you're an overcomer, that you're a metacor. So this is the thrust of this second uh, exposition, is that Christ, as our brother in his true humanity, shared the same flesh and blood that we did so that he can be our high priest. This is where the argument moves by verse 17. He is our, now our merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted or tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. He is able then to come to our aid in the process of sanctification. Therefore, the challenge is given in verse 1 at the end. We're still in the doctrinal exposition down to verse 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers, there's that word metakoi again, Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, which means to learn all you can about something. Learn all you can about the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him. And the thrust of these five verses is that just as Moses was faithful over the Jews, but that's in the house, Jesus is faithful as the one over the house. 
And the conclusion in verse 6 is, But Christ is a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Not for phase 1 salvation, but for phase 3 rewards and bless, special blessing in the millennial kingdom. Then there comes a uh, warning, starting in verse 7. This is the uh, practical exhortation and warning section from 3.7 down through 4.13. 3.7 down through 4.13. And there's one verse that's repeated three times. It's a quote from the Psalms. It's a quote from Psalm 95. Seven. It's quoted in Hebrews 3.7, it's quoted again in Hebrews 3.15, and it's quoted again in Hebrews 4.7. That's the theme of this section. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And the analogy that's being made is to the rebellious Jews in the Exodus generation. The challenge to the believer today is don't harden your hearts against what? Against the message. Notice the word for word that is used here. We have verse 16, for who having heard rebelled. See, those Jews heard the Old Testament revelation. God spoke in times past by the prophets. For who having heard, they rebelled. And then... The application of verse 1, therefore, sent of chapter 4. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel, what's the gospel? It's the revelation of God spoken through Christ. The gospel was preached or proclaimed to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The implication is it better profit you and be mixed with faith in your life. And then again in verse 4, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. This constant idea that God has spoken and this calls upon us to respond a certain way or there will be consequences. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not forgiveness. It's one of the great confusion, I think, for most people is they think if they're forgiven, there aren't consequences. But if I go out and commit murder, I can confess my sin and God forgives me. But there's still consequences. That person's still dead, and I'm probably still going to jail. I may not get executed for 10 or 20 years, but there's still consequences. There is in this section a promise of rest. That's the parallel. The Jews in the Exodus generation forfeited their rest because they didn't trust in God. The rest is analogous to our future millennial blessings and rewards. The, even the conquest generation under Joshua entered into the land, but it wasn't the rest that is fully spoken of. Verse 8 of chapter 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. There is a rest for us, and that's our position in the millennial kingdom, and the message is, are you going to respond with positive volition, learn the word and apply the word today so you're prepared to rule and reign with Christ? And this brings home the final exhortation of verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. That's the same word that, that um, 
that Paul used with Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, spudazo, be diligent. That means work hard at living the Christian life. Be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the example of disobedience. For what? For the word of God. See this, this message thing again, that God has spoken. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now that's a verse that's familiar to all of us. But note the context. It's an argument. Be diligent because the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to lay bare your life. It can divide it, even the soul and the spirit, joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of heart. And there is no creature hidden. Notice where that next verse goes. This isn't just a verse about inspiration and the power of the Word of God. Is that the Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents in your soul so that there is no creature hidden from its power but all things are naked and open to the eye of him who is to give account. It drives us right to judgment evaluation at the Bema seat, that there will be an evaluation for reward and responsibility. But then we come to the third section, which emphasizes the high priestly work of Christ. See? Verse 14 shifts, seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. See, it immediately takes us back to grace. As soon as you hit this hardcore punch that you better wake up, this is serious, we're going to be evaluated, there's the reminder that there's grace. Because we've been given a Savior who went through the same things we did. He can sympathize with our weakness, and He is there to aid us in our suffering and in our testing. God's given us everything we need in order to surmount these tests and move forward. And if we fail, there's confession, forgiveness, and we can move forward. And that's the thrust of verse 16, to come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy Find grace to help in time of need. See how that fits within the flow of Hebrews and that warning. And then there's a shift to talking now about the high priesthood of Christ. See, we talked about the fact that he's created over the angels, and then he's created lower than man and elevated above man. When he's created lower than man so that he can go through this sanctification process, this qualifies him to be a high priest. That's where we ended before the last warning. And now we come back to this third point, and he's going to develop the priesthood of Christ, and he has to do something to explain it because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a Levite. He's not qualified to be a priest by birth. He's not a Levite, so how can he be a high priest? And so he qualifies him by the fact that, that a priest, in verse 1, is appointed for men and things pertaining to, to God, so that he represents man to God, that he can offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He has compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray. That's most of us more often than we like to think about it. Because of this, he's required for the people to offer sacrifice for sins. And then he mentions Aaron, that he, that, that's the role of the Aaronic priesthood. But Christ also did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was said to him, and now we connect Psalm 2-7, which was given in Hebrews 1-5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So we're going to go back and we're going to pick up this thread 
from the first chapter talking about the sonship of of Christ, his, his eternal sonship, his eternal begottenness, and the declaration of his begottenness as the son of David, that's connected to the priest verse, the Melchizedekian priest verse of Psalm 110.4. So you see what happens in the flow of the author is in the first chapter we talk about Christ as son. Christ is Davidic son. He is the royal Son, He is the royal human son. Now he's the royal human son high priest. And we're tying all these things together to build a case for what Christ is going to be able to do in the millennial kingdom. And because we're identified with him, we're going to be there if we go through the process that he went through. So... The writer comes back and he is going to develop this idea of the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's, the Melchizedekian priesthood is not a Jewish priesthood. It was a Gentile priesthood. It was a royal priesthood. Uh, Melchizedek was the king priest of Salem. But at this point, the writer has to break off because he recognizes that they are dull of hearing in verse 11. They're on the ver- they've been sliding into reversionism and they're on the teetering on the edge of just dumping their Christianity completely and tubing it almost irretrievably. And so he has to stop. He can't go on anymore. He says, you're dull of hearing. And then he says, "For the, by this time you should be teachers. But you need someone, again, to teach you the basic principles of the oracle of God. What's the oracle of God? It's what God spoke. See, once again, we're back to that theme that God has spoken, and that requires something of us in terms of response. And he says, so much, we have to go back and teach you basic doctrine all over again. You've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone, verse 13, who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word. There's that concept again, unskilled in the message of righteousness. Why? Because he's a baby. Verse 14, but solid food belongs to those who are mature, those who have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. That's the mature believer. And then there's the great warning passage everybody knows about in chapter 6, which begins in verse 1, therefore, and he decides, you know, you may be babies and you may be dull of hearing, but nevertheless, I'm going to press on, even though I'm giving you stake and this is heavy doctrine, you need, to, you need to hear this. He almost rams it down their throat despite their disobedience. This is a sensitive pastor. He's going to make sure you understand doctrine. Even if you're carnal, he is not going to lower his level of expectation because of the, limitation, the carnal limitations of the audience. How about that ought to be on there? That concept ought to be on every... Uh, uh, homiletics department and every seminary in the land. See, they just keep wanting to dumb everything down. But the writer of Hebrews says, not only am I not going to dumb it down, let's ratchet it up a couple of degrees and really drive it home. So he says, if you don't do this, there's a warning. Verse 4, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and become partakers 
Here's that word metakoi again, partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God. There's that idea of a message again and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. In other words, if you keep on this reversionistic slide, then there's going to be a point of no return where you'll end up in the sin unto death and you will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So what do you need to do? You need to... Confess your sin, get back in fellowship, and move on. Keep going. This is the warning that goes on down through six, chapter 6, verse 20. And again, it continues to emphasize key ideas such as salvation in verse 9. Uh, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. And he says then in verse 12 that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. So this whole idea of inheritance for the believer, a special category of inheritance for the overcomer believer, is emphasized in this warning section. Then we come to the, that was the exhortation and warning in 5.11 to 6.20. Let's just review this where we've gone so far. Section 1, 1, 1 to 2, 4. The doctrinal exposition actually goes from 1.5 to 1.14 with a practical exhortation and warning from 2.1 through 4. Section 2 is chapter 2.5 through 4.13. The doctrinal exposition is 2.5 down through 3.6, talking about Christ being made lower than the angels so he can be crowned with honor and glory and go through that sanctification process to be our high priest. Then there's a practical exhortation and warning in 3.7 through 4.13 to be careful, be diligent to enter into the rest. Then in section 3, 4.14 to 6.20, there's a doctrinal exposition in 4.15 to 5.10, very short, emphasizing his high priestliness in terms of the Melchizedekian priesthood. But he interrupts himself to once again warn the readers. In an exhortation that goes from 5.11 to 6.20, he inserts a warning in 6, 4 through 8. The warning passage is just a small section in the overall uh, practical application or, uh, I mean, um, challenge or exhortation. Okay, now we go to section 4, the fourth section. This is the lengthy section from 7, verse 1 down through 10.39, 7.1 to 10.39. The doctrinal exposition is from 7.1 to 10.18, from 7.1 to 10.18. And in this section, he returns to his theme, which is the high priesthood of Christ, which is according to the order of Melchizedek. He states a principle in verse 7 of chapter 7. In 7.7 he says, Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. That's the principle. The lesser is blessed by the better. Therefore, since Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek, Abraham is the lesser, Melchizedek is the greater. By implication, all the descendants of Abraham would also be lesser than Melchizedek. One of Abraham's descendants was Levi. Abraham gave birth to Isaac, who gave birth to Jacob, who gave birth to 12 sons, one of whom was Levi. So the Levitical priesthood comes from the loins of Abraham. If Abraham is subordinate to Melchizedek, 
a fortiori, you've heard that before, a fortiori, Levite and the Levitical priesthood is subordinate to Melchizedek. If Abraham is subordinate to Melchizedek, then the priesthood that comes from Abraham is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. So Jesus Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, which is a priesthood that's superior to the Aaronic priesthood, to the Levitical priesthood. And therefore, to this Jewish audience, the writer is saying it is a tragic mistake if you think that by going back to temple ritual or tabernacle ritual, those dead works that he mentioned in in about 6.4 that 6.5, going back to those dead works he's talking about, ritual, that if you go back to that, you're going to an inferior system. It's analogous to that which was spoken by the prophets in the old times versus the full and complete revelation given by the Son. And then in verses 11 down through 19... The writer argues three things. First of all, that the Old Covenant demonstrated a need for a better priesthood. There were limitations in the Old Covenant, which is the Mosaic Covenant. The Levitical priesthood was inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood, so there has to be a better priesthood. That's his point. There has to be a better priesthood. A change in the priesthood, though, means there has to be a change in the law. Since the Levitical priesthood was a codicile in the Mosaic law, to change that priesthood, you've got to change the Mosaic law. So to change a priesthood means you have to change the law. You have to change the covenant. The Mosaic covenant has to be limited. And so his argument is that to change the priesthood means you have to change the covenant. And a change of the covenant would annul the commandments related to the Mosaic law. And his argument here is that for... He concludes by saying, for the one, on the one hand, this is in verse 18, for on the one hand there is an, an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, in other passages, the New Testament says the law is holy. See, it's holy, it's good, it's right. But it couldn't save and it couldn't make you mature. That wasn't its purpose. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. The law could not get you to maturity. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. Confident expectation drives you to the future. A better hope through which we draw near to God. And then he goes on to argue in verses 20 and following that a new covenant demands a new priesthood, an unchangeable priesthood, that is related to Jesus Christ, who has in verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. What doctrine is that? That's the ascension and session. See how he, all those themes and those, that opening prelude just keep coming back. He just weaves them together. And we've got to, we've got to develop all this. Isn't this going to be fun? And then he goes on to talk about this new high priest who in chapter 8, verse 1, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And that's why I said at the beginning the theme of this book is unpacking everything related to the ascension and session of Christ, 
what that means for the believer in this age and what that means for our future destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So a new high priest demands a new covenant. And he goes on in an exposition of the new covenant down in verse 7 to talk about the fact that, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And then he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, and he quotes all these verses for one simple reason. Verse 13. See, this is typical of Jewish Midrashic exposition. They'll quote eight verses just to make a point on two words. Catch this. He quotes eight verses. Peter does the same thing in Acts 2. He quotes this whole passage out of Joel 2 just to make one simple point. He's not exegeting the passage. He just quotes the whole New Covenant passage, and he says, look, what does it say? It says a New Covenant. New Covenant implies the Old Covenant is replaced. See, the verbiage is simple. That's all he's saying. New Covenant means, by implication, the Old Covenant had to be replaced. New means the Old has to go. New is new, old is old. New means the old goes. That's all he's saying. In eight verses, that's all he's saying. Verse 13, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Isn't that a simple argument? So sophisticated and so simple. Because the Bible says it's a new covenant that shows that the Mosaic covenant was not going to last. It was going to be replaced. Then we come to chapter 9. In chapter 9, he argues that the first covenant had a protocol for worship and service of the Lord in the tabernacle. And he goes through and he talks about tabernacle and tabernacle worship. And then he relates this in, in um, verses 11 to 15 to Christ's role as the Holy Spirit of good things to come and that he's the mediator of a new covenant in the heavenly Sanctuary. He is able to enter into the most holy place in heaven by virtue of his substitutionary spiritual death. Then in chapter 10 he goes back, the writer goes back to show that the law was, was perfect, but he could not make those who approach God perfect. That wasn't its role. But you can't go back and say, well, the law was just kind of screwy. The Pharisees misinterpreted it and screwed it up, but the law was holy and perfect. But it couldn't make anybody saved, and it couldn't make anybody mature. And so there had to be a replacement of the old law. And then we come to the exhortation and challenge in verses 19 to 39. Now, this is going to be a lot of fun because it has one of the most serious warnings in the New Testament, given in verses 26 to 39. And the challenge there is if we sin, this is verse 26, but if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now that sounds scary, doesn't it? If you sin willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And a lot of folks think that means you you lose your salvation. And what we'll see here is that ultimately this is saying that if you don't stay in fellowship and you don't mature, then you have treated the sacrifice of Christ lightly and there will be consequences of the judgment seat of Christ. 
But if you are confessing your sin, recovering uh, fellowship, and you keep going in the Christian life, then there will be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Then we come to the fifth and final section, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, down to the end of the book. 11, 1 to 13, 25. 11, 1 to 13, 25. And chapter 11 is a chapter that's familiar to many people. It's a favorite chapter of many people. It is the Hall of Faith chapter in the Bible. It is a development of the heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. But it is not simply a rehearsal of great believers in the Old Testament. But there is a theme around it. The theme is faith, that it is faith that is a trusting in what God has revealed a trusting and living out of what God has revealed so that it focuses on the future. See, each of these heroes lived in their present time in light of future promises of God. That's the theme of Hebrews, live today in light of eternity. They understood a future. We have Abel, Enoch, We come down to Abraham, verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place. What is calling? It's the revelation of God. And he responded in obedience. Called to go out to the place where he would receive as an inheritance. See, we go all the way back, trace this whole idea of inheritance, all the way through Hebrews. Which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. See, he's trusting God, looking to something in the future. This is stated again in verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. But he never saw it. He never realized it. In verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They were all living in light of future, yet yet still unrealized. Rewards. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. In other words, he made decisions on his present time as to what he would not do in light of future reward and blessing. Verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. It was the reality, the future rewards of God were so real to them, so tangible in their minds, that it affected their day-to-day living in present time. So it is by their faith, not just trusting God, but trusting in what God had revealed to him, what God had spoken in times past through the prophets. And, of course, the ultimate example of one who was trusting in light of a future expectation was the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come to the first, uh, let me see, the doctrinal exposition was a whole chapter of chapter 11, to the practical exhortation of chapter 12, 1 through 29. And where we're told, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is, this is where the writer now builds to his conclusion. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the 
originator and completer of our faith, who for the what joy set before him, future expectation, endured the cross, despising the shame, and what? He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What's that? That's the doctrine of the session. Notice how he comes back to these things again and again and again. The doctrine of the session tells us that Jesus Christ is doing something today in history. Because in the session, he's seated, he's waiting for the kingdom. But why is he waiting? Because he's preparing a cadre, a cadre of metacoy, a cadre of companions and overcomers who will rule and reign with him in eternity. Well, there is a warning here down in 1225 to 29. In the exhortation, there's an emphasis on not growing weary, but enduring, hupomone, enduring in the midst of discipline, that God will discipline believers. And that's not just the negative chastisement, but it is the positive of teaching you to be disciplined in your spiritual life, making decisions where you're applying doctrine and moving forward. And there's the warning not to be like Esau down in, in 25 to, to uh, 29. Uh, there's a warning not to be like Esau. Esau's in chapter 16 because Esau, rather than living... In light of his future inheritance, he was willing to sell out everything for present gratification. He wanted that bowl of lentil soup, and he was willing to sacrifice his future inheritance for present fleshly gratification. So the challenge is for believers to maintain your walk with the Lord today, be disciplined in your walk for the Lord, be disciplined in learning and applying doctrine, being willing to put off gratification of the lust of the sin nature in light of future rewards and blessings. There's a warning in verses 26 to 39, 25 to 39. See that you do not refuse him who, what? Him who speaks. Who speaks? God has spoken in these last days by his Son. For if they, that is the Old Testament believers, did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth... See, there's an idea of speaking again. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Verse 26 quotes Haggai 2.6. For he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also heaven. There's a shaking coming. And when it all shakes out, we want to be overcomer, companion believers. And then we have our final exhortation in 13, 1 through 25. 1, 13 to 25, where he ties things together, uh, challenging them to continue in Christian love, in impersonal love and love for others, and application from that. He also challenges them in regard to uh, marriage, to personal conduct in verse 5 and to focusing on the fact that in the midst of trials we trust God. And verse 6, a quote from Psalm 27, 1, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then there are some concluding challenges to follow those who are leading them because their desire is to prepare them. The desire of godly leadership is to prepare the congregation to be rulers with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the message of Hebrews. 
We need to live today in light of eternity to understand where God is taking us, what he's preparing us to do to rule as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom so that that becomes such a reality that it affects our day-to-day decisions and attitudes and thoughts. We'll come back in two weeks now. Remember, next week, no class. Two weeks, and we'll start Hebrews 1.1, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this evening. We pray that we might uh, take heed, as the writer of the Hebrews says, that we might pay attention to what you have said in this epistle, that it may challenge us and that we may grow to a new level of spiritual maturity as we study these things and apply them under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit as he uses them to produce maturity and spiritual strength in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.